Hi everyone, welcome back to Roll for Enterprise, the podcast described as the squishy heart and the center of enterprise IT. Happy New Year. This is the first episode of season three. We made it through three seasons, guys. Well, technically, we made it through two. Two and a half, yeah. <laughs> one, one and a half, maybe, or one and three quarters, yeah, something like that. We're going to round up. Yeah, 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 exactly. But thank you for being with us. Uh, it's uh, been a blast for us recording. We hope you have enjoyed listening. Uh, so let's kick off the the third season uh, by owning up to the fact that the second season only had 51 episodes in the RSS feed. Uh, that's because we were all having too much fun over the Christmas break and we couldn't all get together online to record a podcast episode. We did put out on our various social channels a textual podcast, uh, which was the next best thing. And so we will put the link in the show notes. We hope you can go check that out. Uh, and that was the one where we did our 2022 predictions because episode 51 of last year was our 2021 look back. Uh, so then we did the 2022 predictions looking forward, uh, which, to be honest, mostly ended up being, yeah, what we said for 2021, but more so. <laughs> Is that a fair assessment? Acceleration. It's like uh, pouring fuel onto the fire. It'll just continue. Pretty much. And if, of course, you can get hold of fuel because yeah. of the logistical disruptions. Which will continue forever. Yeah. Which is why you need a Tesla. Hmm. Unless you can't get power. <laughs> it's right. just turtles all the way down. All the way down. <laughs> but no, but I'm hearing, so beyond the, the things that we usually care about on this podcast, the, the various uh, semiconductor issues, uh, that you've also been having trouble getting a hold of cream cheese, um, especially vegan cream cheese in the U.S. <laughs> What's up with that? The, 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 there are some grocery logistics issues in the U.S. that no one's uh, talking about. But uh, yeah, if, if you see bare shelves, it's it's normal. It's normal everywhere. So that's yeah. what we've been told. We've yeah. adopted the glory of communist Russia. Um, the I read an article on the on the core problem with cream cheese, actually, and it, it turns out there's actually genuinely a cream cheese supply chain issue, which goes back to the fact that there's only a few manufacturers of cream cheese in the country. It turns out you don't need that many cream cheese manufacturing plants. Um, the problem is not with the cows, but somewhere in the middle in that supply chain, the humans, the parts, the plants, the machinery, everything is sort of, it doesn't take much to throw a wrench in the entire scheme. And downstream, you have a cream cheese shortage that is apparently compounded by the fact that, as a little-known fact, Americans enjoy making cream cheese-based foods for Christmas, which is not an experience I've had. Um, so Kraft was paying people $20 not to make a cheesecake for Christmas. Um, Kraft is the vendor of Philadelphia, the leading brand of cheesecake, uh, cream cheese. It Honestly, the whole thing is the kind of story that you would expect SNL to put out and not actually be news. Not well, to be all morning, smug I, European I, I, here, but I bought a big tub of Philadelphia just the other day, and there was plenty of it on the shelf. Well, <laughs> just well, sure, saying. But it was probably made in Ireland. This morning. But hold on, I had a bagel with cream cheese this morning. I had every morning for the last couple of weeks, I'm just saying. You know, somewhere in New York, there's actually issues with that, where the, where the bodegas can't get cream cheese. I'm just saying. Uh, in New York, that would be an issue, yeah. Yeah, it's actually torn at the fabric of their society. I thought it was all uh, stemming from a driver shortage um, for truckers. I, I didn't think it was uh, related to other supply chain issues. But I, but I guess labor's tight everywhere, right? Labor's tight everywhere. There, you nobody, nobody is available. Labor which, is an issue. Which, which I mean, let's take it to IT, right? I think it's it's gonna it's gonna hit home fairly hard here. 
um, uh, what, what I've heard um, through the grapevines is that there are a lot of uh, vendors and partners who are turning down, uh, turning down, let's say, work from, you know, um, uh, from companies that are looking for help in different IT projects because they can't find people. Um, and eventually that's going to slow things down, right? Or companies are going to say, you know, to hell with it and try to try to hire IT people to do some of these, these projects. I, like, like there's a big, there's a big kind of pot stirring that I think will have to blow over at some point with everything that's happening uh, around this. I mean, cause I, I don't, I don't see companies slowing down and saying like, yeah, if they don't have anybody, we'll just wait till they do because then it, they'll, you'll never get to it. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think this gig economy is moving up the stack. Uh, we put some notes. We'll put some notes uh, in the show notes, uh, a couple links. But um, we're seeing fractional CTOs uh, as a thing now. So we're starting to see this gig economy move up the stack, Mike. And you're exactly right. A lot of people are resigning their jobs and taking on part-time work, consulting work, um, you know, things like Upwork and these type of things are taking off. Uh, and it's impacting everybody from marketing to, you know, engineering to, you know, you know, whatever else. And so I, I think you're right. I think that's, and that's the future. I, again, it's moving up the staff, right. As we, as we speak. I, you know, I, the thing that I can't help think of is like, is it going to change the way corporations are, are built? Because I mean, are we going to get to a point where nobody wants to work for a corporation and corporations are seen as bad things, right? I, I don't know, but I, I feel it's, it's starting to move that way. You know, you see a lot of employee resentment toward, um, towards some companies. So I, I, I don't know. Right. Um, I, I just, the thing that I sort of reflect on myself is when I think about doing a consultant job in any of the roles I've had in the last 10 years, let's think like really expansively, uh, almost every one of them, I, I wouldn't say that they necessarily, um, there's a, two components that, that are, are difficult to imagine in consulting work. One is a management component of humans because human management is, rarely something that fits neatly into a 20-hour week, unless it's, you know, also managing a similarly 20-hour week employee. And then the second piece that's difficult to imagine is the sort of subject matter or domain expertise that seems to be necessary in a lot of roles. And so I'm not sure that that's true in every role. You certainly can maybe be a, a technical copywriter and make sure that sentences are grammatically correct and string together, maybe without having deep expertise in the topic that you're reading. On the other hand, how do you do product marketing? How do you do product management without an, enough commitment to this domain and product and an understanding of the backlog and the roadmap and the customer needs and that, right? It, 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 in Just some a continuity, the, yeah. The continuity and like the sort of notion of being dropping in, getting everything you need and knowing enough about it to make the right decisions and the right calls about a product or its positioning or its competitive intelligence or anything just feels real hard to do on a part-time basis. Well, hold on. You're, you're speaking from a vendor perspective and that's vastly that's right. different, right? So from a vendor perspective, sure. And this will impact vendors because some are going to survive and some aren't going to survive. And that's bottom line, right? That, it's, it's a fact there, but let's talk about Mike, from your perspective, from a customer perspective, let's talk about, let's say uh, an organization and, and there, there's a business unit and they go out and they want to hire some IT people. Maybe they start with you know, part-time consultants and, and, and part-time CTO and things like that. So there's two different things. I, I don't know that I disagree with what you're saying, although I do think marketing is going through a huge transition right now. Um, 
you know, Mike, what do you think from your perspective, from a business perspective? To to be honest, you're you're both right because I, I think it depends what lens you look at it from. Like a corporation wants the people to be their people, their mission driven, their and I think that requires like, yeah, full time people to be passionate about it. I, I think from the end you're looking at it, Zach, it's like, what does the it's not even the employee. Yeah, but what does the employee want? And I think we look at it because we're um, company people. I mean, we've been raised into like the corporate ecosystem, but I, I think that's what's really changing in terms of some of the, yeah, millennials or gen, what are we calling them now? Gen Z is that they're on their own. They're doing their own thing and and maybe they don't want to be tied to that. You, you know, it's, it's this, this 40 hour work week is, is becoming, is becoming strained. And I think that's starting to really change in, in, in the world, to be honest. Yeah. So I, I think you're right. Um, but I think this is also something that we've seen before and it builds on something that was already there. So 15 years ago or so, I remember there was a, a moment when a whole bunch of uh, people slightly further ahead in their careers than me we're all going freelance and all making spectacular amounts of money from at least my perspective at the time, still starting out yeah. in my career. Um, and I did look into it briefly. And then I realized that, wait a minute, so they were going to have to do a whole bunch of stuff for themselves that companies staff professionals to take care of. And so I reframed my thinking to the point that I'm, I'm not foregoing a massive amount of money that I could make if I were freelance. I hired a legal department and an HR department and uh, you know, facilities and whatnot to take care of stuff for me so that I could do, uh, you know, my 40-hour work week could be doing only the fun bits uh, of the job and not having to do whole masses of paperwork and so on because other people were taking care of that. And I do wonder whether this might be the case again. Certainly the gig economy platforms that we've seen to date uh, which have mainly been sort of uh, what used to be called blue-collar work, right? If we see them migrate to white-collar uh, type of jobs, we'll see the same type of mechanism that it uh, externalizes the costs uh, that previously were borne by the corporation onto the individual worker in a way that an employment relationship doesn't do. Uh, and especially if those end up being, as was often the case with those blue-collar gig jobs, uh, just permanent employment uh, under a, you know, <laughs> with a false mustache and without yep. the job security and healthcare and whatnot, because once again, we're uh, commie Europeans over here. <laughs> <clears throat> we, we didn't say that, but yes, yes. I Do you think the equity contribution piece is also playing into effect because some companies have not been doing well and people are reevaluating like a lot of people commit to companies because of the equity piece of it of, of, of salaries but i mean look at all these people at amazon right they've been stagnant as a stagnant stock i mean is that starting to have ripple effects on people's i don't know a commitment to these organizations i i would say it is right i think because equity has become over the past maybe 10 years a large piece of people's compensation. And now you're in a point where inflation is here, people's salaries are going up. Well, how does the equity contribution go up that these people are getting too? Yeah. And Amazon explicitly acknowledged that. I'll go hunt for the link in a minute. And yes, they the did. Show notes. They did. But yeah. 
So you're saying Zach? I think it, I think it does, Mike. You're spot on. No, I was gonna say he's right. I mean, honestly, if it wasn't for you know, you know, equity, I, I don't, wouldn't be where I'm at right now. I don't know. My feeling is is that um, there's a lot more in this newer generation of employees of just transparency. You know, when I joined, I will say IBM 20 years ago now, right? The the message that essentially you were asked to say was, uh, I'm I'm here. I've got a tattoo. I'm all in. This is my company. This is my home. This is my soul. There is no better place on earth, right? And that was essentially like the the, the mantra within the organization, even though they had gone through what they went through in the early 90s, where full-time lifetime employment quickly became, oh shit, we're going to lay off a whole bunch of people. And there was like a real change in the organization during that elephants can dance period of IBM, but still going into it in the early aughts, the idea was essentially that you had to present as a lifetime forever employee, and this is the best of all possible worlds. And then now, I think when we're looking at the hiring pool of people, whether gig or not gig, there's a lot more transparency that basically says, what are you doing for me? Am I interested in this? Are you, you know, my life's joy? Or am I doing this just because I have to pay the heating bill? And let's just own that, right? And in that way, I think we can have these conversations about equity and about compensation and about job progress and all these other things in a way that's a lot more transparent than the way that we, in our generation, were raised to do it within these large corporations. Yeah, I mean, the, I think it all goes together. What you said at the beginning about continuity, uh, that's kind of the, the important factor. If you're job hopping every, let's draw a line in the sand with a nice round number attached to it and say 12 months, 12 months is barely enough time to, you know, find the coffee machine and figure out the the internal power relationships and whatnot and start to be productive at any organization of a decent size. And so if you're job hopping that frequently, you're not delivering that frequency. At that point, you might as well be a contractor who's hired to deliver some specific atomic skills that they already have uh, and then get out again uh, after fixing whatever burning issue it was if on the other hand you're contracting with someone for more than 12 months well at that point they might as well be an employee and you might as well have that honest conversation with each other about you know (laughs) where is this going Uh, so to speak and not to make any uh, improper metaphors there the the question then is you know is this being arranged just as a financial uh i mean you know, a smokescreen, especially in the US with the, the healthcare issue, with healthcare is tied to employment. Uh, and is this the only thing that's maybe keeping people in those traditional employment relationships? Would they rather be, as you know, the likes of Uber tell us, would they rather be independent contractors if it weren't for the fact that they, they would struggle to get healthcare at an affordable price uh, without, you know, the IBM umbrella negotiating for them? I, I get the feeling like um, work agreements are going to become much more open-ended, much more flexible. I, I think that's what's going to ultimately happen because c- companies will have no choice, I think, if they want great talent to work for them. I, I think for the first time, the employees are in the driver's seat and starting to realize it for the really the first time, I think, in my career. Because it's been like some people have... Um, really take in charge of their careers. But I think companies are always driving people's careers. Like, yeah, you know, we need to do some career planning. We need to do this. We need to do that. I think for the first time, the employees are like, yeah, you know what? I'm out. This is not what I want to do. 
This is what I want to do. Can you make it happen for me? No. Okay. I move on. And I think for the first time, it's kind of shifted uh, that thinking there. And that doesn't necessarily have to be an issue. Uh, the good no. companies, and I've worked at a couple of them, good companies recognize that maybe an employee, even a successful employee who's doing well, who's doing good work, they might not have, they might not find what they need for the next step within the company. And they encourage that person to leave, go elsewhere, get whatever additional experience they need, and then maybe come back. And these companies have, you can identify them. They have flourishing alumni networks. They have significant numbers of boomerang employees, people who genuinely do leave and then come back in a different position or maybe going up a level or two in the career ladder because they went and got some different experience that rounded out their profile. Others, they they treat that employee relationship as handcuffs and you can see, uh, again, there are public signs of this. You see it in their, uh, their stock option agreements very often where they have very punitive uh, clauses built into those uh, around the, the stock that you've accumulated and how you can you can uh, uh, you know sell it and whatnot, and that is, I think, the hallmark of a company that will navigate this new relationship. And I agree with you, Mike. There is a step change there uh, successfully versus ones that will try to oppose it and struggle and uh, quite possibly fail. Sorry, Larry, I mean, I think saying... the other the other thing that might come into play here is non compete, right? Because when somebody is going to get that experience or move between organizations and some non-competes are incredibly tightly written. And I know that very few are litigated. Many are sort of warned. You get that sort of like warning letter or whatever. Um, but the more a company is inclined to be um, uh, draconian in their non-compete agreements, I think that's actually going to disincent long-term employment and boomerang employment and all sorts of other uh, engagement with a, with the group because Honestly, I think in many, 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 many functions, the actual um, truth of the competitive danger of a particularly like a, a individual contributor or a first line manager moving to a competitor is not actually as great. It's minimal. As yeah. yeah, it just isn't right. It's different than a salesperson taking their whole Rolodex, which, by the way, is almost all but impossible to prevent. Um, they do that anyway. Yeah, <laughs> they do that anyway. Right. And it's, and it's certainly different than a CTO, you know, walking off and joining the direct competitor. But for your average engineer or your or your but average, what's, IT what's the difference? average marketer. Yeah, the, the CTO or the person at that level often gets baked into their contract that they will have six months or 12 months or 18 months, even in some cases I've That's seen right. of gardening leave paid. That's right. um, oh, fine. If you don't want me to work for your competitor and you're going to pay me for a year so that my proprietary knowledge goes stale, I'm fine with that. It's if you say, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to pay you, but you also can't go get paid elsewhere, then I have a bit of an issue. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure that 50 to 75% of the employees in any company, regardless of the type of company, are actually carrying the kind of non-compete dangerous information that somebody's truly worried about having get out. Yeah, and I remember you and I having this conversation many moons ago in the context of uh, bring your own device. And corporate IT departments, uh, as Lilac well knows, and as Mike well knows, um, like to put very restrictive policies. Certain corporate IT departments like to put very restrictive policies on employee devices. And one of the justifications is, but what if proprietary information, privileged, et cetera, et cetera, walks out the door, gets left on a train, uh, whatever it might be. And the answer is that most employees are not privy to anything that would meaningfully move the markets anyway. If the entire contents of my hard drive were uploaded to GitHub tomorrow, 
I can guarantee you that the stock price of my employer would not be altered by a single cent by those contents. It's uh, a vanishingly small number of employees who have that sort of uh, need for privacy and and for non-compete agreements, et cetera, et cetera. And in those cases, you take extraordinary measures, like they have a burner laptop that they travel with uh, and a different machine that they leave chained to a desk or, you know, whatever it might be. I do think that, like, with the stipulation that somebody who might be in HR that might have access to PII type information is a yeah. little bit different. That's not competitive, but it is sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you um, – so if you look at this kind of um, – what, what's happening in the boardrooms, right? So yeah, obviously they're talking retention for the first time pretty seriously. They're talking about recruitment. What does this do to AI and robots? Like, are, like we're going to see acceleration there, right? But do you think it's going to be real acceleration to replace people with automation? I don't think it's going to be a replacement. I've, I've talked before about um, Centaur AI, where you have a human and a machine or an algorithm working in concert. Uh, I could see people attempting to do, you know, the sort of augmentation that we've already seen using a, a knowledge base in some sort of system to provide that context and continuity and long-termness, kind of the um, uh, to the nth power version of picking up on somebody's inbox. Uh, so you pick up on your predecessor's inbox and you can see the email conversations that they were part of and you can continue them and I'd take that to the nth power it's it is easier to step into somebody's shoes, and I think we might see if this uh, this process does continue as I think we all agree it will. I think we might see a new wave of those types of systems, those types of capabilities emerge, and this may well tie into what Zach was talking about—the low code and the no code—because um, the past the problem with these expert systems has always been how difficult it is to actually capture that information to build the decision tree. And how the people who are capable of doing that building work are hardly ever the people who have the knowledge. So you have that disconnect where I have to explain to you, the coder, uh, what I know in a way that you can then code. And, and there's so many steps in that process and places where information can get lost. That's very, very hard to do right. If we can get systems where people who have the knowledge, the domain expertise, can capture it and set it down themselves and use it to augment their, their successors, I think we'll start to see more of that. And we spoke to Clue uh, last year who are doing that kind of thing for a particular domain and there are all sorts of others out there. There there actually was a, a pretty in-depth, like no-code, low-code uh, study that came out yesterday, I believe. And I was reading just the highlights. You, you know, the biggest thing, the biggest thing is like, you know, and, and I think what when, when people look at no-code, low code, they always assume it's like no code, but it, it's really like less code. That, that's what it ultimately is. But I think the biggest takeaway is like the rapid growth in, in the field and the fact that it's, it is helping like IT go into regular roles because people are starting to use it. And then, um, you know, that empowers more and more uh, regular employees who are not IT employees to start doing it. I, I think this will continue. I think no code, low code is is really the the one that accelerates more than I think AI and robots. To be honest, to some extent, it accelerates and spreads. That's right. You're right, Mike. Especially building websites has been an increase in and in websites making a comeback for people trying to personal brand in this digital world. So you're seeing that, and there's a lot of no code, low code, um, you know, uh, 
software packages or whatever out there to build these sites. So we're seeing an increase there. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. The, the thing is, I think the marketing, no, uh, no fun to you guys, uh, hasn't caught up that they're not, a, they're not pointing to the right people in, in these low-code, no-code uh, products. I, I think if they were able to hit the right cord and get to the right kind of market, um, they're, they're a real addressable market, I, I think it would be it would be even it would go even further right so well that's i entirely agree with you actually mike i i feel like one of the challenges in any of these situations where we see evolutions like this is that the marketing or the messaging or the positioning and that include extends into product as well right is this sort of idea that i'm going to do low code as an alternative to high code right as opposed <laughs> oh. to low code as an alternative as a way to do, to fix your problem right so so people aren't doing the sort of quarter inch hole marketing that is what is necessary here they're comparing it to now you no longer have to write in a full ide with a full set of like the people you're selling to don't know what an ide is right they have no concept of what high code actually is and so you actually need to be selling in the way that some of the website vendors as zach mentioned sells they just basically say want a website in a jiffy <laughs> and, yeah, and that's well, how you're yeah. selling it but in other domains that message is because it's not consumerized, that message actually isn't targeting the right business buyer because it is treated as an alternative to an IT purchase, which yeah. I don't think is the right positioning at all. Not at all. As we said in the 2021 uh, recap, oh, the 2022 predictions, actually, it was, um, uh, you know, when we talk about low-code, no-code, the, the poster child for that movement is probably something like Tableau. And Tableau is not marketed as here is how you don't do coding it's marketed as you know you're currently using excel and you're struggling to do this and this tableau makes it really easy and the the, the problem from marketing's point of view is that that's not one population it's a million different populations each little tool uh, is its own little population little user population you can't market to developers uh in as a as a group you have to market to you know sales ops people and you have to market to them yeah. separately to to be honest and most uh, most people most it organizations have been in, introduced to tableau it came from the business side of things yeah the, exactly the, the problem and and the problem will always be the data unlock like I, I don't understand how IT, some IT organizations are still making decisions for the business, which I think is like detrimental. But you know, on both it's like, sides. yeah, on both sides, I think the data unlock issue has to has to get uh, much more open. But yeah, let's see. Yeah, definitely. And this is uh, you know something that we talked about after Amazon reinvent that they're barking up the wrong tree, in my opinion, because they they keep on building things for developers. And their, their product strategy appears to be, yes, <laughs> keep on building more things, more different ways to, to run a database, to run Kubernetes, to do this, do that. And from the point of view, that's exactly the opposite of what a domain user wants. They want to know, how do I do X? And they want one clear opinionated answer. This is how you do X. And they can go, ah, okay, now I shall go and do X, which is what I actually care about. The how is not interesting to me. I just want the result. I want a quarter-inch hole. But that is a engineering-led yeah, product organization, totally. right? Like fundamentally, and and the um, I would even go so far as to say that at least even from their start, AWS had a strong bias toward people who were smart enough to use our stuff and not <laughs> an empathy for p 
people who might have a problem statement, but not the technical chops. And in fact, I would say that even now, that 47 ways to do X solution that they have continues to incent the most brilliant AWS architect and probably raises that individual's salary by a significant amount, right? They're getting a huge amount of an uplift because they know how to navigate the madness that is AWS. The disruptive play would be, of course, to, to create a, a viable and straightforward alternative to this that was equally sort of cost effective or had other benefits, right? That's where the, that is where all of the cloud competition comes in is if you're not smart enough to use AWS and you might be a normal sentient being, like maybe just try this one option. This is where Microsoft, like long run, Microsoft will win over AWS. I'm, I'm sure about it. And I think AWS's attitude, uh, I, I don't even know how to say it, but it's like it's they're almost like condescending to some people. I, I think that will end up hurting AWS long term. And if you look at where they're going, they're going a after developers in like niche markets now I instead of trying to pivot the other way. I mean, they I think they tried to do it at the last reInvent where they brought in some like older companies, but it's still like, yeah, IT organizations and and, and so development focused still today, right? So, so think yeah. about Microsoft, Mike. I mean, we're talking about first $3 trillion valuation was Apple. Um, I don't think they're still there, right? Microsoft has been around how long? A long time, and they're about to hit that threshold, Mike. You're right. I mean, yep, how have yep. they been able to pivot so many? I'm just sitting here thinking how impressive, and they're solving business problems. That's how they've been doing it. You know, AWS never really targeted developers from the very beginning. I mean, they were really going after elasticity. They were kind of going after the, you know, uh, insurance companies that had peaks in November, and they were trying to help them with, you know, compute resources. I just want to clarify that a little bit. I don't think, I mean, I think they need to 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 grab onto these developers. It's kind of where they're their bases right now, but I agree with you, Mike, they're not solving the problems Microsoft's solving. Not at Every, all. Everything we talk about, like from, um, from like a major topic in, in like what's happening in technology and, and I'm straying away a bit from IT, like Microsoft is there at the forefront, right? So, you know, you talk about like AR, VR, XR, whatever you want to call it, right? Everybody's like, waiting with bated lips, what, what Apple's going to do. And people start to think that Apple's ahead because of like AirPods and some of their, and, and like Meta's trying to do it. Microsoft has HoloLens. They're actually in applications and businesses. They're doing something there. They're in gaming here. Even when you look at the crypto world, I mean, they almost pulled off the heist of the year when they, when they tried to acquire Discord. I mean, if they would have acquired Discord, oh. I think that would have put them like really far out there. Oh, I, I, could like, you I, imagine? I, I don't know how they're so... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's every area they have somebody thinking about. I mean, I think the gamut that they support is much bigger than anybody else and anybody realizes. Yeah. Well, so, think about what you said, uh, Discord, right? I mean, that would have been brilliant. Just like LinkedIn, just like GitHub. I mean, look at these acquisitions. They're just a step ahead. I mean, you got AT&T said, look, let's just put our 5G infrastructure inside Microsoft, you know, which we can talk about in another episode when it comes to 5G and Starlink. But, you know, they sit, they're sitting in Azure and it's almost like, you know, AWS is spray and pray. Let's just kind of figure it out. And, you know, Microsoft's just very focused. You know, they're, they're going after the right things. Just, I think yeah. you're right, actually. I think that's exactly what's happening is that AWS's whole philosophy, and I don't think that's accidental. I think that's actually their strategy. And I think you're actually characterizing the, the difference between that and the Azure strategy. Um, and I think both of them believe that their strategy is going to lead them to market success and frankly there's room for both of them to be, they can, to they be can. fabulously exactly. rich yeah um but they're fundamentally different product strategies and go-to-market strategies across these two organizations to the point that i think that comparing them in any 
sort of at, at the Gartner level, right, at the analyst level, not comparing their specific services for an IT buyer, but comparing them as organizations is very much apples to kumquats. Oh, yeah. The, the big three, we tend to lump them all together, but they, they're not at all like each other because Google is different again, it has a different strategy. Holy but, cow, if only they could get UI right. I mean, they'd be <laughs> Yeah, maybe they'd be the three trillion. Anyway, yeah. uh, no, that's... Um, a good kickoff to the year. I think we've got enough topics to chew through for the next uh, 51 episodes in there. So <laughs> let's get to it. Uh, it's been great talking to the three of you again. I hope uh, the listeners also agreed. If you have topics that you think we should be discussing in the coming year, please do send them our way. We're on Twitter at Roll4Enterprise with a number four uh, or on our LinkedIn page. The link is in the show notes together with links to all of the stories that we discussed today. The theme music is by my good friend Renato Podesta. And please do keep in touch. Talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks.